Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode 10, November 2018. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. Hello, Paul Meyer here with my latest podcast, a service of Paul Meyer Dialect Services at paulmeyer.com, where you'll find all my books, ebooks, and services for spoken word training and coaching from stage dialects to Shakespeare to corporate communication and accent training for non-actors. Well, it's been a busy month since my last podcast. I've been back to my native England, something I do pretty much every year for a long field trip. It's always amazing to hear how the accents have changed from year to year. They change so fast, and they're certainly nothing like the the accents that I heard when I was growing up there 40, 50 years ago. And I've been busy with coaching shows. Willie Russell's Blood Brothers, the musical Newsies, the adaptation of uh, Servant of Two Masters, One Man, Two Governors, and A Man of No Importance. So I've been having uh, Liverpool accents and New York accents and... Cockney accents and Dublin accents in my brain all all month. But now to my main topic. For me, the thought is both deeply distressing and wonderfully exhilarating at the same time. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. Or as the Puerto Rican-American poet William Carlos Williams, often cited as its originator, put it, it's not what you say that matters, but the manner in which you say it. There lies the secret of the ages. Williams, one of the 20th century's greatest writers, though not a household name today, wrote this back in 1931 in his selected essays uh, discussing poetry and, and poets like Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot and others. Out of its context, don't you find the idea appalling? It's become such a commonplace that I've never thought to examine or challenge it. But I see that it favours the packaging over the contents of the package, a thing's appearance over its reality. It plays into our veneration for salesmanship and commerce. It clearly implies that if only expressed in the right way, Just about anything we speak or write can be persuasive. Great but evil public speakers like Adolf Hitler come to mind, able to so mesmerize a crowd that they buy into their truly terrible ideas or believe their most blatant lies. Williams' dictum implies that any idea can prevail, if only the writer or the speaker is clever enough. Shakespeare's Brutus, for example, after assassinating Julius Caesar turns the angry crowd to his side by brilliant rhetoric. As Caesar loved me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. As he was valiant, I honour him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. Somehow, weirdly, it sounds just fine, doesn't it? bumping off someone who loved you, who enjoyed the blessings of life and who was brave in battle for the crime of being ambitious. <laughs> sounds sounds almost admirable, put the way Brutus does. 
and the extra syllables worth of sneering on ambitious, the original pronunciation, makes ambition seem a capital offence indeed. Very odd. But our susceptibility to clever speaking hardly explains why half an entire nation is swayed by a particular speaker, finding him or her to be admirable, trustworthy and convincing, while the other half finds that same speaker to be a despicable downright liar who would lead us straight to hell. Puzzling. And never more so than in current U.S. politics. Conversely, the Williams idea seems to suggest that even the most laudable opinions, the most virtuous proposals, won't gain any traction at all with an audience if expressed unskillfully. Without enough logos, ethos and pathos, the, the three ingredients of Aristotle's rhetorical recipe, we remain unpersuaded by even the best and noblest of ideas. Are human beings really that shallow and undiscerning? I am rather afraid that we are. Yet the idea exhilarates me too. It promises that if only I speak it well enough, I can make even the most turgid and banal text thrilling and convincing to my audience. Every actor aspires to that kind of power to make a film or play, script-proof, as it were. We have a saying in the theatre about the best scripts. We call them actor-proof, meaning they're so good that even the worst actor in the world couldn't muck them up. But every actor would really much prefer to be script-proof, celebrated for being able to spellbind a crowd with the worst text, even if that text is nothing more than the phone book, or even if it's nonsense. "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. "'All mimsy were the borogoves, and the momraths outgrabe. "'Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. "'Beware the jub-jub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch.'" "'I am the Eggman.'" They are the Eggmen. I am the Walrus. Goo-goo-goo-joob. <laughs> it almost makes sense, doesn't it? Sort of like a spell. Abracadabra. We don't know what it means, but it sounds absolutely convincing and powerful. I love Billy Connolly, don't you? That wonderful comedian and actor has the enviable knack of making the most ordinary observations utterly intriguing. One of his techniques is extreme musicality. A typical Connolly bit might start with a totally ordinary sentence or two. I was in the high street, and there was this old lady with her dog. I saw them through the shop window, and she was buying some dog food and a bar of chocolate. But, as Connolly would tell it, swinging through about three octaves as he does, I was in the high street. And there was this old lady with her dog. I saw them through the shop window and she was buying some dog food and, and a bar of chocolate. <laughs> Fascinating. Of course, there's so much more to his power to mesmerise an audience than the musicality of his Glasgow accent. It's the man's posture towards the world. 
his amused compassion and wisely observant take on the everyday. And you just know that the lady and the dog seen through the shop window are going to make a riveting story and you just can't wait to hear the details. Connolly has you eating out of his hand. I actually made that up about the old lady and the dog. Uh, he doesn't have any bits about old ladies and dogs, as far as I know. What springs to mind now is the very opposite of Billy Connolly's talent. An inherently profound idea spoken so badly that it's dead on arrival is the dry-as-dust scripture readings I had to sit through in church as a child, bloodlessly intoned with a generalized wash of faux holiness. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It was only later in life, when inspired by Alec McCowan, that fine British actor, I toured my own one-man show, using the Gospel of Mark as the amazing and fast-paced dramatic narrative that it is, that I realised how some of the priests in my childhood had sucked the very marrow out of those great words. What exciting, speculative ideas about ultimate reality some of them actually are. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. It's such a capacious idea, containing the most diverse resonances and meanings. A bold idea, indeed, that before anything existed in the universe, before there even was a universe, there was logos, reasoning power, the word, a thought, perhaps language itself, and that language is God, and, and God is language-based reason. Surely those words deserve passion and wonder from anyone who reads them. It certainly commands my passion and wonder, even though I am agnostic about religious dogma. Then, later sealing my love of narrating great metaphysical texts, I was asked to record the Bhagavad Gita, the Song of God, part of the Mahabharata, the amazing Hindu epic as an audiobook. Such an exciting text. But such classical texts don't reveal themselves easily. They're dense, impenetrable, and like heightened texts of all kinds. Shakespeare, for example, require the very greatest skill from the reader to bring them to life and to render them clear to the listener. To make the heightened expression not a mere poetic embellishment, but the only possible way that such an idea could be expressed. So can we codify and quantify the skills and techniques that enable a speaker to bring difficult and not-so-difficult texts to life? I've always thought so. And in my books, like Voicing Shakespeare, I've always sought this holy grail. But looking back on how I've spent my life obsessed with the potential of human voice and speech to inform, to thrill, to elevate, to spellbind, to make us more human and more humane. But now, considering this awful paradox, it's not what you say, it's the way you say it. I can't help wondering if we voice and speech teachers and coaches are simply enablers, stooges, patsies to brilliant liars, 
helping mendacious actors elevate fiction to the level of truth, helping slimy companies sell their ideas, goods and services more persuasively, helping self-serving politicians become more effective in their rhetoric, even if the required rhetoric involves an apparent lack of rhetoric. The aw-shucks, homespun styles like uh, George W. Bush's and Harry Truman's come to mind. Or whether my mission has been as noble as I've always hoped, helping people find the passion in what they have to say, helping them discover and develop their authentic voices. Bit of a conundrum. I suppose all people in my line of work have assisted both noble and ignoble causes in their time. I just remember the story of Moses and his brother Aaron. You see, my church-going and Sunday school wasn't wasted. As revealed in both the Hebrew Bible and the Quran, Moses was painfully inadequate as a public speaker. And though we're told he had a direct line to the supreme being, he lacked the speaking skills to communicate the revealed truths. He was heavy-mouthed and heavy-tongued. A speech defect of some kind? So his brother Aaron a skilled public speaker, became Moses' mouthpiece. And it was Aaron and his descendants, I just read, who founded the lineage of Judaism's priesthood. So the actor trumped the prophet, in a sense. During my time I've worked on texts both sacred and profane, from Shakespeare, Milton and the Bible, as they say in Desert Island Discs, that long-running BBC radio show, down to movie trailers and commercials for consumer products, every conceivable type of project. I'm struck by the fact that the required rhetorical skills are pretty much the same, no matter what the project. Here are just four of those techniques at the top of my list. Whether the project is reading the news, delivering a lecture, selling toothpaste, giving a sermon or playing King Lear. Number one. A speaker must bring a sense of importance to the task by finding the key words and, and romancing them, making them sing. After all, if the speaker doesn't think they're important, why are they wasting my time? In the beginning was the word. In a world of darkness, one ordinary woman sees the light. You know how sometimes you just have to have a big, juicy hamburger? The key words. Number two. A speaker must get the text off the page, as we say, by recreating the words in the moment, freshly minting them in his or her own brain before sending them downstream to the mouth. This way you avoid a mere second-hand reading of someone else's words or a recitation from memory. Even when the audience knows the speaker is reading aloud from a text, perhaps he or she is standing at a podium, turning the pages of the lecture, they still need to be able to suspend their disbelief and buy into the idea that these words and ideas are being newly coined in the moment. Of course, in plays and films, bringing apparent spontaneity to the job, avoiding any sense that the words have been memorized from a script, is an absolutely essential part of the actor's craft. Number three. The speaker must have a deep 
and authentic connection with the ideas, the argument. We can sense when speakers are uttering mere words, and when, preferably, they, as it were, stand under, understand the ideas expressed in those words. To be or not to be? That is the question. We can sense if the actor-character has surveyed all the ways this idea could have been expressed, but finally chosen this way. The greatest actors can convey that sense of in-the-moment speculation that's involved in a spontaneous utterance. Number four. The speaker must be able to discern and reveal what I call in voicing Shakespeare the hierarchy of importance. Simply put, some parts of a text are more important than others. And if that sense of relative importance isn't conveyed, if everything sounds equally important or unimportant, then the architecture of the argument is obscure. We just can't follow it. In every phrase, some words are more important than others. In every sentence, some phrases are more important than others. In every paragraph, some sentences are more important than others. In every chapter, some paragraphs are more important than others, and so on. The listener absolutely needs the speaker to reveal this relative importance. I could list a further twenty or more distinctly different and important techniques. But, of course, they're still to do with the mere spoken word. A beguiling and subtle serpent. And it begs the question of whether we can actually divorce the essence or truth or virtue of any idea from the way it's communicated in spoken or written words. Can any idea have an existence separate from its expression in language? Perhaps only, but importantly, by silent actions, by mute deeds. Take away the words, those pesky obfuscators of the truth, and we can tell if a seemingly charitable deed is performed from the annoying pressure of obligation, from the self-gratification the charity might bring the giver, from the giver's unholy desire to obligate the recipient of the charity, or with selfless love and joy, true altruism. We can tell, can't we? We have enough of the sensitive animal in us to know the difference once the razzle-dazzle of the words is removed. Following this idea, Michael Caine's wise observation about film acting springs to mind, that it's not so much the words, the lines that the actor speaks that are important, it's what happens in between the lines, during the silences, that's the most powerful and engaging. It's the actor's thinking and feeling that we find so amazing as an audience. The actor's unheard but eloquent silent thinking and feeling that we can almost mystically tune into. This is less true in the theatre, I suppose. And the larger the theatre, perhaps, the less true it becomes. Without those huge close-ups we get in the cinema... Those intertextual silences aren't quite as eloquent in the theatre. We can't see the actors' eyes so well and cannot peer through that window into their souls. However, I believe that even at a distance, 
This energy can be animalistically sensed by the audience and by the speaker in a kind of reciprocal communion. The great Polish director, Grotowski, and others in the field like Peter Brook have been intrigued by this supralinguistic magic and sought to understand and harness it. More mundanely, skilled interrogators often develop an uncanny sense for when a subject is lying or when he or she is telling the truth. If pressed on how they do it, they might mention what con artists call the tell, that tiniest of movements that can give us away. David Mamet explores this in his film House of Games, for example. If we adapted William's adage in the light of this idea, then it might read, It's not what we say that matters. It's what we do and think and feel. And perhaps, if this is actually closer to the way it really is, our education system should be doing a lot more to develop our instincts for the truth behind the words, helping us to go beyond and beneath what's written or spoken, and to see through the smokescreen with which words can veil the truth. Thanks for joining me and indulging my passion for a little speculation. It's a real luxury for me to step back from the trees and look at the forest once a month. This being the run-up to Christmas, one of the trees absorbing my attention at the moment is Dickens' A Christmas Carol. So along with Blood Brothers, A Man of No Importance, and One Man, Two Governors, it's part of a service I provide to to theatres around the world. Unique, as far as I know, offering my dialect designs for specific, often produced plays and musicals. If you'd like to see a list of the more than 100 scripts I've tackled in this way, take a look at Dialect Recordings for Plays and Musicals under the Other Products tab on my website's menu bar. That's at paulmeyer.com, of course. Join me next time when my guest will be renowned dialect coach Amy Stoller. We'll be talking about idiolects, that is to say, the dialect unique to the individual. Did you ever think about what defines your own idiolect? What makes it different, for example, from your brothers or your sisters? Find out next time on In a Manner of Speaking 